Welcome to episode 22 of Super Entertainment Presents the Telgen Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Join me from parts unknown as Crazy Ivan Shabosky, convention panelist and lover of cheese. From Studio B is James Boyerchuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions and lover of tea. And from Studio C, Chris Nagro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press, lover of cheesy puns. And I am Robert E. Ronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia, lover of canned peas. And the TVC crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fiction of reality that we call the television crossover universe, uh, which is something I have to explain to people all the time. <laughs> You'd think I would have that memorized. <laughs> so many people like, what do you do for a living? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I just write. <laughs> Anyways, welcome, guys. Great to be here. Howdy. All right. We're always stuck here with you. <laughs> was nothing good on TV tonight, so. Yeah, what you don't know is all these Aww. studios are what I call the cages that they're in. <laughs> they're stuck. Everything happens somewhere, and I just happened in cage number four. Thanks. I, I like Cajun food, so, yeah. All right. So, what would you guys like to talk about for your announcements today? I don't know. You usually pick one of us to go first. Okay. We're lost without your orders. <laughs> All right. Ivan, you go first. Rattle my cage, will you? Okay. I have nothing new to talk about. It's just, uh, you know, life in cage number four. <laughs> All right. Chris, go. <laughs> okay. Um, Ivan, I've noticed before that a lot of older people have this habit of putting plastic wrapping over their furniture to keep it from getting dirty. Did you notice that too, or is it just me? I think it's just you. Most of the older people I know don't have plastic wrap on their furniture. The last time I literally saw that happen was in the 80s, and that was my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother used to do that too during the 70s. Seriously. Done, done, done. <laughs> but and none of the I, older people I know today do that. So it's antiquated, right? I believe it would be considered antiquated, yes. That's okay, an I, accurate I, use of the word antiquated. Okay, I didn't pronounce the word, the, the quay. Um, and it is not Uncle Quated. <laughs> okay. okay. Or Dennis Quated. <laughs> Just wanted to ask that. And J- James, what would you like to plug? <laughs> Or announce. <laughs> well, I would also like to plug old. Pe- I would also like to plug old people who have plastic wrap on their furniture. <laughs> Props to them and their discomfort. But my I would also like to plug Nicole Petit's latest book. If you've been waiting with bated breath for Nicole's latest project, I have very good news for you. Her most recent book has just come out, Just Those Stories. One of her favorite authors has always been Rudyard Kipling, and one of his books that she has always most adored is his own Just Those Stories. And these are short stories explaining the why and wherefores of the world in whimsical ways. Yay, alliteration. This led her to do a volume in Kipling's honor, asking modern authors to explain the world. There is the challenge, of course, because, hey, we're going to publish the best of the best. And they tell us why gravity hugs us so tight, how letters were discovered, and who was minding the P's and Q's, and how bed finally learned to be bedtime. This is one of my favorite books that we've released to date. Every author's work is sparkling, and Elizabeth Duffy's cover is gorgeous. She is just the best graphic designer. It's amazing. 
It's really a fine collection. If you read bedtime stories to your children or nieces or nephews, this is a book that you need to own. And, I hey, I won't judge. If you read bedtime stories to yourself, you also need this book. <laughs> I think buying this anthology, James, will be a total bare necessity. <laughs> wow. That's not bad. <laughs> but if you're going to be bare when you read it, make sure you're sitting on plastic-covered furniture. Yes. Oh, that is essential. My brief shameful plug is for you to check out Josh Reynolds' Phineas Fogg, War of Shadows, which just Ooh. went up for digital release. Sweet. All right. So how about you, Rob? What do you have to plug? Uh, this show um, and, and, <laughs> and how great it is. Um, so keep listening. This is the best show. Four Actually, out of four hosts agree. I, I, I want to plug our, our, our listeners also. Um, so in, in the month of April, and I say that because it's it's now two weeks beyond April by the time this is airing, or one week, one week and a half. Anyways, in April, our, our, our number of listeners has doubled, um, so yay for that. And um, So thank you to the new six listeners that we have. Actually, and I, and I have it up here, in the last seven days we had 630 plays. In the last seven days, as April thirtieth, when wow. we were recording this, six hundred thirty—that's even more than six. Yeah, wow. one thousand two hundred thirty-eight plays in the last thirty days, and uh, none of them are my relatives because yeah. I asked any of my relatives to check in, and none of them have. Yeah, so no, they're just too busy on that plastic furniture. <laughs> oh, so, <yeah. laughs> so that's 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 really good considering you know we were having like in the beginning like forty-six a week, you know, and now yeah. you know. We've gone up a lot. You like us. You really like us. Um, and also, I wanted to mention, um, I guess I won't be asking you guys for money for a while because um, our, our costs for our show have been covered for uh, May, June, and half of July, thanks to um, generous people. Um, but so of course, we're always happy to take more money. So yes, since you yes. funded the show, we will take more money. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can always give us more money. <laughs> so that I will stop. Continue to not ask for money. <laughs> but, I uh, do need a new pair of sneakers, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, this money would not be used to buy sneakers. Yeah, this goes to studio fees. That then, I, then I can then use the other money to buy sneakers. <laughs> and yes, don't forget, your furniture might need some protection too. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you always want to protect your furniture. Wrap it up. <laughs> All right. From old people. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I have, a, I have a story, but it's way off topic, so I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna go into it. <laughs> we already have a topic. <laughs> no. Okay. I, you know what? I I was at this re- retreat um, this weekend, and mo- a lot of the people there were like just old ladies and and stuff. It's a spiritual place, right? So it's like it's it's a religious retreat center. And in the restroom, they had a condom machine. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Because <laughs> I'm looking around at all the people there, and I'm like, don't want to know who is using <laughs> that machine. Well, if all the ladies there are past menopause, I don't understand the need for it either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose men could have STDs too, you know. I mean, and if I could speculate further... Maybe not. 
And what's worse was it was possible that that location was used for more than just religious retreats. No, no, no. This is a religious. This is a spiritual center. And uh, oh, okay. <laughs> and the thing is, it wasn't in the bathrooms like by the bedrooms. It was in the bathroom uh, where the classrooms are. <laughs> so, oh, good. The yes. only thing I can imagine that isn't going to lead to nightmares is that the bathrooms are stocked by a certain outside company and that's what they put in all of their bathrooms. That is a possibility. At least that's what yeah. I would like to believe. That, that is a possibility. However remote, right? I, I hope so. <laughs> because I had to sit in the classroom and I'm like thinking like if, if these are only in the, the classroom bathrooms, then <laughs> then what kind of classes do they teach in there? Yeah. I would say um, kinky after 80, maybe. I don't know. There, there's all kinds of different spiritual practices. <laughs> maybe they just use the condoms to make balloons. You know, you could. So on, on that note, we're going to um, go to commercial and come back and talk about um, Hodgson with Sam Gafford. <laughs> so uh, we'll be right back. And we are back. And James, would you like to take care of our guest, please? It would be my pleasure. Well, dear listeners, it's all been leading up to this. Since the very first episode of the Television Crossover Universe podcast, we've been talking about Karnacki and about William Hope Hodgson. It's a running theme. And at long last, we're here to talk about Hodgson and his creations in detail with the man who is likely the greatest Hodgsonian scholar to ever live. Sam Gafford is currently writing William Hope Hodgson, The Critical Biography. In addition, he's edited two volumes of Sargasso, the journal of William Hope Hodgson Studies, with the third volume due later this year, as well as Hodgson, a collection of essays. He's contributed to the Scholium volume William Hope Hodgson, Voices from the Borderland, and of course he's done much, much more besides that. In addition, Gafford has edited some short fiction collections, most notably Karnacki, The New Adventures, has contributed stories to a great many fine collections, among them The Lemon Herberts, which seems to involve quite a few of the guests we've had on this show, or will have, Big Top Tales, and Super Swinging Hero 1968 Special, which I included just because of how fun that was to say. <laughs> Gafford is also the author of the comic Strange Detective Mysteries, which features some of the people we'll be talking about tonight. Now, Sam, tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself and how you came to discover William Hope Hodgson. Oh, well... Um it goes back kind of to when I was in high school back in 1978, and that was about the time that I discovered Lovecraft, and I was determined to read pretty much everything that I could that Lovecraft wrote. So, of course, one of the things I eventually got to was his article on supernatural horror and literature, which, like many people, I ended up using as a shopping list. And within that article, he had some very glowing things to say about Hodgson, and it immediately piqued my interest because it had to do with the sea. and was also an author I'd never heard of before. So after that point, I kind of like made it my mission to try to find out as much as I could about Hodgson, and since then I've just been doing work on him, trying to get him more, I guess, recognized, and the main goal really is getting more people reading him which uh, I've always been working towards. That is a worthy goal. In fact, you're the one who got me into him and had me notice him for the first time. Oh, now, great, can you, great. 
Can you give us an overview of Hodgson Fiction and his worldview? And what makes him unique? Why are we still reading him or really basically altogether rediscovering him for the first time? Ooh, well, I mean, Hodgson was one of the pioneering writers for what we're now looking at as the early days of science fiction. And he was also one of the early writers for weird fiction. And he managed to combine the two of them on several occasions. We see that with the Karnacki stories, of course. But we also see that in his novels, particularly the uh, Ghost Pirates, which I consider to be a great mix of horror and science fiction. And, of course, The Nightland, which is probably one of the greatest post-apocalyptic stories written and it's very long, but it's a great story about sort of like a million years after the sun has gone out and people are forced to live in giant metal pyramids and the narrator has to leave the pyramid to go rescue somebody. And it's an incredible piece of an imaginative fiction and it's like of what you don't really see anymore. So when we want to talk about his worldview, it's kind of problematic because unfortunately we don't have a lot of primary sources for Hodgson. Unlike Lovecraft, we don't have a lot of letters, we don't have diaries or much. And you know, he died in nineteen eighteen. And unfortunately when he died he wasn't read very uh, plentifully. A lot of people didn't know him at the time. So a lot of stuff that people who were reading Lovecraft when he was around, they kept letters and things like that. And it didn't really happen with Hansen. So a lot of what we have has come down a couple, uh, sort of like two or three generations down, and is based a lot upon some of the groundbreaking work that was originally done by Sam Moskowitz and also by Randy Everts, who interviewed some of his remaining siblings back in the 60s. So from that, we've been able to build most of our knowledge. And even that is severely limited because I can't tell you how Hansen thought about specific things or specific issues. I can tell you in general based upon his writing and some of the letters that we do have, sort of the type of person that he was. Now, he was born the son of an Anglican priest. And he had a extremely contentious relationship with his father, which, to me, I believe led to him not so much being of an organized religion. And I think this was kind of probably furthered when he went to sea at the age of 13 and was there for approximately 10 years. And when he left the sea, he left it with such a vibrant hatred that he would never go back to it. So I tend to think that when we look at his worldview, it's a very um, nihilistic type of worldview in the sense that there's no real saving out there. If you read some of the short fiction, it's very fatalistic, and uh, especially if you read uh, some of the particular short stories of people on the sea, they're very much just sort of like victims 
and they're on this very capricious god of the sea, which cares nothing about them, and nothing they do is going to make any difference. Well, it's easy to see why Lovecraft liked them. Well, yes. In fact, it's kind of funny because Hansen died in 1918, and Lovecraft was alive at this time. But he did not even read Hodson until 1934. Mm. And that was on the recommendation of a friend of his. And he had read Carnacki um, possibly one or two years before that and wasn't a big fan. But then when he read the novels, the four novels that Hodson wrote, he was like ecstatic about him. If you read some of Lovecraft's letters to his friends, he was just like amazed at these novels and he was completely stunned as to why he had never heard of Hodgson before and he had started writing that essay Supernatural Horror and Literature which appeared in a fan magazine and he had already written most of it before it had appeared and Hodgson wasn't in there but once he read those novels he immediately revised it and put Hodgson into that essay unfortunately that fan magazine folded before they could get to that part of the serialization. But thankfully, August Ehrlich included it when he restored that essay to its full length. But it's definitely that you can see, really, how Lovecraft would really be attached to this, because not only does he kind of share some of the worldviews that Lovecraft does, but he also has a lot of the strange sort of cosmic viewpoint. And you see that especially with the Nightland, and you see that with Hudson's House on the Borderland, when he has this sequence in the middle of the book where the narrator hallucinates traveling through time to the end of the universe. And you can look at it and just say, wow, it's no wonder Lovecraft really enjoyed these, because it's something that he could very well have written himself. But unfortunately, he didn't read him early enough to be much of a influence. We kind of look at that at terms of 1934. Lovecraft had written most of his major work. He only had a few stories after that, one of which, of course, Haunt in the Dark has absolutely no Hudson influence at all. But it has been said, and I believe I printed an article on that in Sargasso Number 2, of the influence of Hodgson on Lovecraft's Shadow Out of Time. And it comes once again to the fact that they both kind of shared the same cosmic view of the universe and of man's complete insignificance and helplessness. Well, Sam, yes. based on your expertise, in your opinion, do you think there's any possibility Hodgson could have been to some degree inspired by Melville, because that's the only example I could think of in the 19th century that dealt with sea as a setting for horror. Well, uh, again, we're kind of like handicapped because we don't really know a lot of the things that he might have read. There's certainly a possibility he could have read Melville. I'm not sure what Melville's status as a writer was at the time that uh, Hodson was alive. Uh, we don't really see a lot of it because Melville, of course, is really concerned, especially with Moby Dick, with the whaling type of sea life. And Hansen's characters are more um, 
well, they're usually more, a little bit more contemporary. So they're almost on the age of steamships. And they tend to tend to be more like merchant marines types of things. Now, it's certainly possible that he could have gotten some of the brooding horror uh, from Melville in the sense that, you know, here you are, you're stuck on this ocean, and, you know, basically there's so many things here that can kill you in a second, and there's nothing really you can do about it. But we could see that in other sort of seafaring type of fiction, certainly not to this extent, though. But, of course, the thing with Hodgson in the Sea is the fact that, uh, you know, as I said, he ran away to the sea when he was 13, and he was returned back to his family and his uncle on his mother's side, interfered and was able to get Hodgson's father to let him join the Merchant Marine. And really, a lot of his anger towards the sea was involved in the ship owners, the captains, and the first mate, all of whom were extremely cruel people. So he tended to use a lot of that for his fiction. And then, of course, you have his other sea fiction, which is just straight-out horror with huge monsters and basically things that can just crush your ship in a second. I mean, you look at Pirates of the Caribbean and like the use of the Kraken is very similar to what Hobson had. So it's tough for us to say what influence he had. I do know for a fact he read Wells, which I think was a major impact for him on the Nightland, of course, and also on the House on the Borderland with that time travel there. So unfortunately we can say, sure, we can definitely make a case for it could be a little bit of Melvin in there, but unless you want to go and do something textually, there's no real proof. We don't have a letter that says, wow, I really like that Melville guy. Can I ask you to regale us with the story of how Hodgson took on Harry Houdini and almost won? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, that's a great story, really. Uh, because the way it was going, uh, this is 1902. And Hodgson had left the sea uh, in late 1900. And as I said, he was so disgusted with it, he was never going to return. But his family was not very well off. In fact, uh, before his father, father died, they were pretty destitute. They were sort of living from uh, contributions from the church. But they were able to get a little bit of a stipend when his grandfather died. And at the time, it was just Hodson, his sister, and his mother living at home because his father had died previously of throat cancer. So in 1901, Hodson opens up a school of physical culture in Blackburn. And he was one of the first people to really get into physical fitness. And the reason he did this was because it was a way to keep all of the bullies on ship from beating him up. And eventually he got a reputation that you don't want to mess with him because he will, you know, literally beat the crap out of you. So he was a keen student of exercise. In fact, his first writings were on articles on exercise and physical culture. So now he's opened up this school. It's in Blackburn. 
but it's not doing so well. Because at that time, it wasn't really a big thing. You know, it was sort of like, well, a hobby or so. And Harry Houdini, in 1902, is not world famous yet. He's getting there, but he's not quite yet. He's still kind of known as the handcuff king. And he's doing a European tour. And at this time, he was making his standard wager, where if anybody could shackle him so that he could not escape, they would win some money. And he issued that challenge in the newspaper in Blackburn, and Hodgson accepted it. And in the paper, Houdini accepted the challenge. So that night at the theater, Houdini shows up, and Hodgson is there. And he gives him shackles that he has made himself. And Houdini inspects them. And this little bit is contested, because Houdini says that at the time he said, these shackles have been tampered with. Their locks have been stuffed. And according to Houdini, Hobson said, if you don't accept, then you forfeit. So Houdini accepted. Now, Hobson denies this, but in any event, he ends up shackling Houdini. Now, the thing to remember here is that Hobson, with his knowledge of physical culture, knows how muscles work. And he knows the way to bind Houdini, so he has the least amount of freedom of movement. So as he's binding him, Houdini is complaining at the rough treatment. And Hodgson says something along the lines of, this is not a game, sir, this is what you signed up for. So he binds him, and the curtain goes up. And hours go by. And the crowd is getting nervous, because... They don't know what's going on. At one point, Houdini asks for the shackles to be loosened because he's lost circulation. Hodgson refuses, and the crowd boos. Mm. So, after two hours, Houdini finally emerges from behind the curtain, and he is a mess. His shirt is in tatters, he has blood on his arms, and he drops the shackles at his feet. There is such a hue and outcry for the un-British treatment of Houdini that Hodgson was forced to leave the theater. And basically what happens then at the end, you know, Houdini has beaten the challenge, however he did it, and Hodgson, of course, would later claim that it was because his brother slipped him some sort of key. But... What would then end up happening is that for years, years after this, Houdini would not perform in Blackburn mm. because he considered it the worst experience of his life. And interviewers decades later would be shown the scars on his wrist where he had to literally rip the flesh off of him to get out of those shackles. But he got out. Wow. And now that is a very interesting thing because you will find this incident in many Houdini biographies. But it's not really mentioned so much when you do research on Hobson. Hmm. <laughs> and 
we can look at this and say, well, from this point, Houdini goes on and becomes world famous after this, after this tour. And his reputation likely would have suffered greatly if he hadn't been able to escape. So in a way, he was a victor in this because, of course, if Hodson was able to beat him, that would have been a huge publicity bonus for his school and he would have been able to keep it going. But as it was, a year later, the school closes. Wow, if, if, if that had just turned out differently, it would have changed their whole lives, both of them. Both of them, yeah. Absolutely. Because the important thing to remember here is after the school closes is when Hodson starts his writing career. Mm. So if his school had continued, he very well may not have become the writer that he was. So for he us, a win win. a writer of fiction, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everything hinged on that one element. I, I feel like for yeah. us, it was a win-win. <laughs> so thank you, Harry Houdina. <laughs> so recently, like within less than the last decade, Karnacki the Ghost Finder has had a huge increase in popularity, appearing in everything yeah. from novels to comics to movies to audio dramas. If you can name it, Karnacki has appeared mm. prominently in it. <laughs> yeah, even on some podcasts every now and then. Yes. So why do you think he's suddenly caught on after 100 years of no one even caring? And the biggest mention of him anywhere was Lovecraft going, I hated it. <laughs> There's enough to make people want to read it. When love something, you instantly want to check it out and say, well, gee, why did he hate this so much? Mm. And, you know, personally, I love to see this resurgence in Karnacki because I love the character. I think he's an incredible character. And what Hodgson did was just so amazing because he was able to combine science with the supernatural, which wasn't really anything anybody had ever tried before. By having Karnacki use photography. and the electric pentagram and all of this other stuff. These were not things that people, ghost detectors, used. So I think it's almost like it's a... We're finally catching up to that point. Oh. Uh, so it has something I, to do with it. I, I think you're fading in and out a little little bit. On that last one, we heard oh, most I'm of sorry. it. But there was a, a, <laughs> there was a sentence or two where... We faded out on us. I don't know if it's yeah, your cell phone reception. I just wanted to let's or us. Or us, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. On my cell phone, and I'm afraid my reception is not as best as it could be. You know, but um, I'll recap the fact that I okay. think maybe one of the reasons we're seeing a resurgence is because of the recent popularity in uh, ghost shows, mm. reality ghost hunting shows. And it, we're seeing a lot of them use the same type of instruments that Karnacki would have used. You know, and uh, it's just, I think it's time. And a lot of the people who really enjoy Karnacki are now writing their own stories with him. So it's continuing. Johnson never would have believed that this would be the character that would last. Okay, well, I so many times. I was going to say, Sam, I know we have no evidence that 
um, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster ever read um, Karnacki, but I wonder if that could have been their inspiration for their character, Dr. Occult, an occult detective that first appeared in New Fun Comics, I believe it was uh, number six or seven, and then even maybe later on, John Constantine, because these all have Karnakian characteristics. Well, we can certainly make a case for that with Constantine. You know, we know that Alan Moore is a fan of Hudson. Mm. He put Karnacki in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and uh, he wrote a introduction to a graphic novel adaptation of House on the Borderland. So, you know, certainly that could have been at the back of his mind when he was uh, developing Constantine. And, uh, no, we don't have any proof, of course, that Simon & Schuster might have read it, but it certainly could have been, and it could have been an influence on him, them just as easily as John Silence could have been, mm. or uh, Auguste Dupin, or any of the other similar. Probably maybe a little bit more, because it was kind of more grounded in reality. So it's certainly possible. Yeah. We discussed this forever ago on the William Hope Hodgson Enthusiast Facebook group, which everyone listening should join in. But I felt your answer was illuminating enough to repeat it again before a wider audience. Hodgson had a tendency to reuse his creation. The Hog appears in The House in the Borderland, the Karnacki story, The Hog. Swine things appear in The House in the Borderland and briefly at the climax of The Nightland. If The Voice right. in the Night and The Boats of the Glen Carrig don't explicitly feature each other's creations, they come with the inches of doing so. Do you think Hodgson was building his own mythos, like Lovecraft later would, or simply reusing ideas as the path of least resistance? I don't think he was consciously building a mythos. There was certainly, you know, nothing like that at that time. So he wouldn't have had any sort of guideline for doing that. But in a lot of the research I've done, it is a fact that Hudson reuses a lot of plots and themes in his fiction. I mean, you will find in many of his stories the assault on sailors who are stuck up in the forecastle on a ship being attacked by some beast or something. And so I tend to think that it's an unconscious building of a mythos, simply because these are the things he liked to write about, rather than him sitting down and saying, oh, you know, I'm going to work this all out, and it's going to be a mythology with certain aspects and things like that. I kind of think it was just a happy accident. Okay. And then building on that last question, because that was originally all I was going to ask about that, but in the course of researching for my questions, I found a quote that's apparently from one of his letters. So, okay. Hodgson wrote that three of his four novels, The Boats of the Gun Carrig, The House on the Borderland, and The Ghostland, made up, and this is the quote, what perhaps may be termed a trilogy, for though very different in scope, each of these three books deals with certain connections that have an elemental kinship. How literally mm -hmm. do you think we should take his statement that they're a trilogy? I don't think you should take it as literally in the terms of like it's a Lord of the Rings type trilogy. I think it is a trilogy in the fact that it addresses some of the same issues. And it has to do with a lot of, uh, again, a cosmic world viewpoint and of people being basically insignificant in view of the cosmos. So I do agree that he was 
sort of working on the same vein of material. But it's not like, as I said, it's not like a Lord of the Rings or one of these other type of trilogies where they definitely one lead into the other one. It, but it's the same type of theme and it's the same concepts that he uses. He's doing different things with them, but when you get down to it, it's pretty much still the same idea. I would agree. And I would really love to, for any weird fiction scholars in the audience, I would love to see someone write an article on this trilogy for the next volume of Sargasso. Get on that, guys. I would love that, too. I would love to have more uh, material submitted. It's not easy to get people to write about Hodson, unfortunately. I can imagine he's not quite tipped over that popularity edge yet. Getting closer. He's not. And I think also the fact that we have such a lack of primary sources is daunting to a lot of people. You know, because a lot of work that you can do, you're going to be pretty much relying upon the text and what we can take from it. I mean, I wrote an article on Hodson's Women, and basically it's talking about women in his I think we're losing the signal again. Yeah. Yep. Are you, I'm sorry. Can you hear me better? Yep, we yep. hear you now. Now I can. Yep, okay. Yep. Um, cool, on how Hodson portrayed women in his fiction. And in the beginning with his fiction, they're very um, sort of original. Oh, we're losing you again. Lost you again. We heard virginal, and then we lost you. Such an interesting single word to pick up. <laughs> Maybe that's why we lost them. When they were depicted as virginal. That's really the important part here. Oops, I think we lost I him. Yeah, he's, he's still connected to us on this end, so... Looks like the phone call was sacrificed instead of the virgin. Is it? Is it Sorry. So in the meantime, I am just going to talk and stall for time. My favorite... <laughs> William Hope Hodgson's story by far is The Hog. It's, even though it is basically the climax of the Karnacki series, bringing all of the elements together into a single whole. Plus, The Hog may actually be one of the most terrifying creatures in all of early weird fiction. It is a story that is not to be missed, especially for Karnacki's very clever system of deflecting the ghost, which is his killer defense. And Karnacki, through his research, you has have discovered... reached the voicemail box of Oops. seven seven four. Now that was different. That was in fact different. <laughs> I'm particularly a fan of Karnacki's Keller defense because, through his research, he has discovered that blue tends to chase outer monstrosities away. They don't deal very well with the Keller blue, but they're attracted to Kellers like violet which really is one of my favorite concepts, where that green is a neutral color that will amplify whatever other defenses you have or anti-defenses. So green and violet would draw all of the outer monstrosities to you like a magnet, while blue and green will be an extra effective barrier. And Oh, sorry, go on. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to ask you, James, you said the hog was the most terrifying creature you've ever read in horror fiction, could he possibly be more terrifying than Rawhead Rex? 
uh, since I have no idea what a rawhide rex is, yes. Uh, Paul Barker story. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think the hog personally scares me more. Now, I was going to ask Sam about this, but since we are now Sam-less, the most interesting will be back in a place, sec. Okay. The most interesting thing that has happened really for Hodgson recently is how he's been appearing in places you would never expect. Like the video game Amnesia, a machine for pigs, is more or less a straight concept grab of the house on the borderland. With swine things and the hog god. And looky there. We are just finally getting Sam back, and I no longer need to stall by sounding as interesting as I possibly can. <laughs> I was interested. You sound much like Kermit the Frog right now, James. Hi, I'm the hog. Hello? Hey, Hi. Sam. We were talking about the hog. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I guess my phone cut out for some reason. No worries. No worries. Um, so what was the last thing we were talking about? Um, uh, virginal women depiction. Yes. Yes. Women. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Virgins. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I was using that as an example of how it can be difficult to do scholarly work on Hansen because, you know, I can look at his work and I can say women in his fiction start out when he starts writing very virginal and people to be rescued. And then at the end, they're, they're kind of devious and they're looking to cause the main male character harm. No, so I could look at that, and I could make a case, well, you know, he must have had an unhappy love affair, and this is the result of it, but we don't know that. And you don't really want to come out and say such a thing without having something to back it up, and there isn't anything, really. There's a very small collection of letters we have, and most of them tend to be business-related. And they're sort of along the lines of, you know, here, I send you this, and I hope you're doing well, kind of thing. But they don't really give you a sense of who he was and how he was thinking. So, uh, as I've said, it makes it very difficult. And I think a lot of people just look at it and say, like, well, uh, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, I can see that. That was actually one of the main reasons I didn't contribute anything to the very first Sargasso. I was mm-hmm. like, what? what am I supposed to do? Um, yeah. Spinning off of the lack of sources... One of your upcoming books is The Dreamer on the Borderland, your critical biography of William Hope Hodgson. Right. For the benefit of our readers, what is a critical biography, and what's your plan for doing this when you have so few sources? Well, basically, the book will be divided into two sections. The first section will be biographical, and the second section will be critical analysis of his work. And on the biographical section, basically what I'm doing is I'm taking all the information that we have from various sources, people who've written articles and people who have published some work in the few letters we have and some of the other information, and I'm going to be compiling that into one central narrative so that we'll be able to say, this is what we know right now. And from that... You know, hopefully, maybe we can move it forward a little bit, because it's always my hope that someday somebody is going to come up and say, hey, uh, my grandfather had a box of these strange letters in the attic, you know, and all of a sudden this weird guy named Hobson. You know, this hasn't happened yet, but it's still my hope that it will. We so we, I still hope, you know, it's been 30 years, I'm still hoping for somebody to find that damn box. 
So the first part is going to be biographical, which will, of course, be shorter than the other half. And then in the critical, I'll be analyzing all of his work, and that includes all four novels, all of the short stories, all of his poetry, and trying to show his development as a writer and make a case for why people should be reading him and studying him. Okay. And now that we're starting to draw to the end of our time, can you tell us more about The Complete Captain Galt and The Sargasso Journal? It is a magazine that I started. It's supposed to come out once yearly, and it is to encourage and promote scholarly work on Hudson. And I welcome submissions from everybody. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in literature. You know, All you have to do is have a enthusiasm and love for Hudson and his work. And we also publish fiction based on Hudson. You know, we've had several Karnacki stories that have been in there, as well as poetry. And I'm always looking for more material. I was hopeful I could do an issue last year, but I didn't have enough, so that'll be coming out later this year. And the complete Captain Gold is still something I'm working on. I'm hoping to get out this year because it's going to combine all of the Captain Galt stories he wrote, which I love these stories, because mm. they are great adventure stories set in World War One. So he's writing these right at the beginning of World War One, even before, in some cases, he rejoined. So it's a great view of what life was like, and I think that Captain Galt is a great and as interesting a character as Karnacki, but it's not supernatural. Galt is a smuggler, and each story has to do with him trying to smuggle something through customs. And the last few stories have to do with him fighting the Germans. Mm. So it's very much in that what was for him a current environment, which is not normal for him to do. A lot of his stuff takes place somewhat in the past, but this one was literally almost torn from headlines. That book sounds like it'll be a major gulfy pleasure. Sorry. I'm sorry? No, I'm the one with the apology. It, it was a pun. <laughs> it was a pun. Gulfy pleasure. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. I, I think Galt is a great character, and it, it's something that I haven't been able to do yet because I want to put together all of the golf story, which includes the ones that he published. And there were a couple that he didn't publish, so I'm trying to get them all combined into one one unit. Okay. I think that about does it for my questions. Rob, do you want to take it away? Um, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to ask if there was, uh, before we wrapped up, if there was any projects out there that you want our listeners to know about, anything we haven't covered or anything you want to cover again, just to get the plugs out there? Well, uh, we will be doing another volume of Karnacki Stories this year, and these are going to be based on the lost files of Karnacki. And these are, just like in Sherlock Holmes, he mentions cases that Hudson never wrote down. So these are all things taken from brief little mentions in his various stories. So looking forward to getting that out this year and getting on another issue of Sargasso. And, uh, you know, hopefully just continuing to promote Hansen and get more people reading him. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I do this is because 
it's not even so much for the study, although I would really like mm. people to study them. I, I just want people to read them and realize, you know, what great stories these are. Absolutely. And uh, where can our listeners follow your work and your projects on social media? Uh, well, we've got the William Hope Hudson Enthusiast Group on Facebook. And uh, I am on Facebook myself if somebody wants to friend request me. And let's see what else. Uh, I do have a web page for All Far Press. That's the company that I use to publish all these books. And I recently started my own website for myself. And I think that's pretty much the limit of my social media knowledge. I would also like to add your really fan, quite fantastic William Hope Hodgson website. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I need to get back to doing that more regularly. Uh, unfortunately, doing a lot of these things, I was involved also with the Necronomicon mm-hmm. Conventions in Providence for the last four years, and we're doing another one next year. And Hodgson will have a panel at the 2017 Necronomicon. Excellent. I'm, Excellent. I'm, I'm hoping to attend that, so... Please do. We're, yeah. we're actually going to try to uh, maybe have a little con within a con. My friend uh, Joey Zone keeps threatening that we're going to throw Karnacki Con during the Ooh. Necronomicon. Excellent. Now you're Are you really talking about Necronomicon Providence? Yes. Okay, good. I go to that every year. Well, every other year. Every other year. <laughs> That, that that's excellent. About fifty percent of our episodes so far have tied into Karnaki in some way. So, so clear, clear, clearly, uh, we like Karnaki, and the and our listeners must too because they keep listening. Definitely, go figure. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sam, for for being with us. It was a it was a real pleasure hearing uh, from you and and hearing. I I've only recently discovered Hodgson myself and the last few years um, when I was researching mm-hmm. um, horror crossovers and Karnacki led me to the other stuff and uh, so right. it's yeah well, Karnacki is what for you what's that? Oh. I think we lost him one last time okay <laughs> so I, he might have said that Karnacki led him here oh yeah yeah right that's what I heard. Well, anyways, we uh, are out of time, and uh, we're going to go to a commercial. And um, I'm going to uh, say goodbye to Sam on Facebook <laughs> because he, <laughs> he's connected to me there. And um, it was really a pleasure. I, I still want to thank him thank on you. the air for being with us. Oh, Sam, are you thank back you with us? Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, I'm only oh, there he is. There he is. talk about Hudson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. fact, uh, normally, I talk about Hodgson too much, and people tell me just to shut up. No, not on this show. <laughs> not on this show. <laughs> okay, so uh, thank you very much, and we're going to go to commercial, and then we'll be right, right back to wrap up. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, well, that's about all the time we've got. I want to, again, thank Sam Gafford for being with us. Um, tying together all of our Karnarchy interviews so far uh, Join us next week when we'll be talking With Dave Elliott, creator of the Weirding Willows Comic book. Before we end I want to thank our sponsor, the Karnacki Institute And I'd also like to thank our Real life crowdfunding sponsor for this week Elliot Gilman, and a special thanks To Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music Leaf on a Stream, thanks to all who listened Remember to subscribe to and rate Our show on iTunes and give us a Review as well And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.